It's episode 88 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeffine. Today on the program is behavioral psychologist, Dr. Amy Buecher. Her new book, entitled Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change, shows how psychology can be used as a design tool to help empower people to make positive changes in their lives. Amy, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm really glad to talk to you. Oh, I'm glad to talk to you too. I have felt for so long as a designer that the discipline of psychology is so applicable to our work, but it feels like most practicing designers kind of pick up little bits and pieces here and kind of feel like, yes, psychology is important, but have like no grounding in the discipline. Uh, and so uh, taking a look at your book uh, over the past week, I just felt like, oh my gosh, what a, what a grounding this really can be. I'm really glad to hear that. I, I felt similarly. And of course, I, I came the other way to the blended world of behavior change and design. Um, you know, got my PhD in psychology and really learned all of the psychological stuff as my foundation. And when I was first working for an organization where they had UX design, I had kind of the opposite but same lightning bolt where it was like, wow, this is an area where the things that I know are really relevant and applicable, but nobody's really thinking about how to do them as a practitioner as opposed to an academic. And, um, you know, I do think designers get exposed to some pieces of psychology in a more systematic way. You think about your cognitive psychology type stuff, um, anything that people are doing with information hierarchy or, uh, yeah. you know, using color to make things stand out and have urgency, like all of that does come from psychology. But I was really trained more as a social psychologist and, um, you know, learning about motivational psychology. And that, that really seemed to be a missing piece that it could add a lot of value. Yeah. Oh gosh, for sure. I mean, I remember like early in our career, in my career, there would, there would be these like these golden rules that we were not supposed to break because of like quote unquote psychology, right? Like, uh, George Miller's research into short-term memory so that, right. And he found that like people can hold seven plus or minus two things in their head. And so seven plus or minus two became like, you know, everything, all like the tabs in the navigation, you can have seven plus or minus two or the, the options in a, in a drop down menu. That's it. That's all you can have. Uh, and, and we never go back and question any of that stuff. And, and one of the things you point out very early on in your, in your book is that so much of the, the research behind like early research in the field of psychology has been called into question. Uh, and much of it has shown to be like that perhaps the methodologies are, are difficult to reproduce today. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel a little, um, that's been a hard thing for me to confront because I think like many people who have done psychology research, some of the things that were, um, you know, close to my heart have also been called into question. Mm. And there is always this implication that there might be ethical wrongdoing that has happened. And in some cases that has been shown to be the case, but oftentimes it's just that, um, you know, we're learning and evolving and people are changing and the research findings of 40 or 30 or even 20 years ago just aren't relevant in the same way that they were when that research was fresh. Um, I did a lot of my early work when I was in grad school. So, you know, this, I graduated college in 2001 and then I was in grad school starting in 2001 mm -hmm. and it was relatively new for people to have institutionally assigned email addresses. So when you started at a university, you would be assigned a, a username and that would sort of be your ID going forward. And I did quite a bit of research on how people might perceive you based on what that username is. Mm. And because at the time that was a relatively new thing before that, it was like you would choose your email address on AOL or, or Yahoo or whatever um, service you were using. And so there was a sort of personal identity assertion. 
versus having your name assigned to you. And then people can, you know, make guesses about your gender and your ethnic background. And that might trigger a stereotype type response. I don't think that research would have nearly the same output today because we've become so accustomed to operating online and having our names be attached to our digital presence in a certain way. Right. But because that was novel, like people's people's heads were in a different place. And it was this really unique moment in time to understand how this shift in systems might be affecting people. And of course, we didn't see it that way because we didn't realize or we didn't think about the long tail where 20 years later, you know, this will all be normal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And you have brought a lot of the the research into behavioral change into sort of how we design our digital products. And I, I wonder sort of if you could give us kind of the biggest, broadest overview of, of what you really mean by behavioral change, because it's a very specific uh, type of psychological research, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I, I actually recently had a conversation with somebody who asked why I don't call myself a behavioral designer, why I always use the word change. And for me, it's because I, I really can't think of an example where I'm not focused on a change. Huh. Uh, it's, it's always about understanding the baseline behavior, what is already going on in a situation, comparing that to a goal, and then understanding how to fill in that gap to get people from point A to point B. And a lot of what I end up focusing on is thinking about people's goals and values and identities, because for behavior change to stick, for people to do something different from now on, and I'm, I'm talking about bigger behaviors, things that are um, more impactful. So not necessarily, um, you know, clicking on a screen, things that you can do with more simple engagement loops and design. But I, I do a lot of work in health, for example, where somebody may get a diagnosis and now they have to take an injectable medication once a week for the rest of their lives. And there's all these steps involved in preparing for that and procuring it and managing side effects and eating correctly and doing the right amount of workout so that you can you know, mitigate the, the side effects that may come with that and make sure you get the best outcomes. Like these really sort of complicated, meaty issues. And in order to get people to stick with those sorts of things, it's important to understand what, what they care about so that you can basically make the case to them that doing these things will help support what matters to them. If you can't draw that parallel, it's really hard to get people to change over the long term. So a lot of what I do in design is, is really just talking to people and trying to understand what their lives are like, what they value, and how the behaviors that I'm trying to design for either fit into that. And, and you know, hopefully they do, because then it really can be as simple as making that logical case and helping somebody see that this aligns with what they want. Or more often, it's that it doesn't fit right now. And then that's where the design comes in. How do we adjust what's what the situation is? How do we give you different tools, different strategies to make this fit what you value and what you want your life to be? Got it. Got it. So let, let, let me just uh, sort of disambiguate a little bit. You're, you're talking about uh, using software tools to help people in changes they want to make in their lives. But I think there's also a lot of application here for using those sorts of techniques that you, that you learn from behavioral psychology to affect all kinds of software. I, I could imagine like here, here's a, here's a app for your phone that helps you make sure you get your medications at the right time. Right. And, uh, and, and stick to schedule and routine and, and all of those sorts of things as an area where this absolutely very applicable, but like, what about the designer who's working on enterprise software that helps do X, Y, and Z for like, you know, procurement or, or accounting or something like that are the same things sort of applicable to all kinds of design that we do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, people are people. Uh, that's kind of an important thing. And I, I <laughs> laugh, but 
Um, I've worked for companies where they don't necessarily think of people as people. It's like, this is my customer and I need to understand, um, you know, they don't, they don't think about the fact that their customer for one product is the same person when they're consuming a different product. Mm. And so, yeah, people are people. And I think there's a lot of same considerations that go into designing any software. I do think the motivational stakes are a little different with something like procurement software to, yeah. to use that example, because you are put into a context where you are required to use it. So if you're if you're working in an area where you have to use this software in order to accomplish your job, that is going to overcome a lot of the motivational barriers that might exist out in the wild for, for using that software. And so as a designer, you might not need to think about really making the case to the user about how this will help their efficiency or help mm. them you know, be better at their job. It's more important to focus on making the software work, um, you know, making it align with people's mental models of, you know, making sure those drop down models match the way that they might search for things, for example. And I do see sometimes in behavior change design what, you know, these more like protracted behaviors, um, sometimes people do reach for those same sorts of toolkits that you would see in an institutional setting. So what if we force them to use it? What if we make it something that um, they get paid to do or punished for not doing so (laughs) that we can wipe out that motivational part of the conversation. And I, I think that does tend to backfire if you don't have the institutional structure around it like you do in a workplace. Got it, got it. Um, and that might be kind of an extreme example. I think maybe somewhere in the middle is like, okay, we're designing a to-do app, a way of mm-hmm. tracking uh, your productivity and helping you feel more empowered in your life because you're getting things done that are both required of you and that you want to do and stuff like that. And it can be more than just like an interface shows and there's a list and, and you can build a lot in that, uh, you know, some of the things that you, you discuss in the book, like, uh, building reward systems or, uh, social accountability or things like that. Yeah. And actually I love that example. I think a to-do list app is a a great example of something that isn't as sort of consequential, but could definitely be designed with these sorts of principles in mind. You know, I I could even think of things like um, helping to group different items on the list and then giving people feedback on maybe they are really good at achieving things that fall into one domain and they struggle more with uh, things that are in a different domain so that they can get some self-insight out of that, um, which can be really rewarding for people to learn something about themselves as part of a process. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you refer to uh, all of these sort of behavioral changes as interventions. Is that sort of the term? Yeah, um, I don't personally love the word interventions. I always think of like the TV show where you sit down your loved one and (laughs) you've got to do something differently. But it is the word that's used sort of in the broader field. So it's the correct terminology. So that could be improving your health or saving money or learning a language. It's not like you, you have to stop drinking or something like that, right? Right. Yeah. An intervention can absolutely be for a positive purpose. It, it's it's just such a loaded word in our culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But just in terms of framing, these are the sorts of things that um, that these design techniques can help with. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Um, and you kind of frame it all around uh, self-determination theory. Tell me a little bit about that. I found that fascinating. Yeah. I So I learned about self-determination theory in a really systematic way, probably about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. One of my colleagues at Johnson & Johnson started to use it in some of her research around how to create incentive schemes for people who were doing workplace wellness programs. And she found it really, really helpful and was sort of excited about it and evangelizing and got me excited about it. And, you know, 10 years later, here I am writing a book that's framed up using it. 
But um, it, it comes, most people have heard of DC and Ryan's work on intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. That tends to be a thing that even people who've never taken a psych class are, are somewhat familiar with. They know the difference between an external motivation and an internal motivation. Sure. DC and Ryan are two of the pioneers of self-determination theory. So this is basically the robust version of that very simplified intrinsic, extrinsic motivation idea. And it looks at motivational quality. So you take extrinsic and intrinsic as your two ends of a spectrum. One is completely outside the person. One is completely internal to the person. There's actually lots of shades in between that are more or less internal or external to the person. And a core idea of self-determination theory is that the more internal somebody's source of motivation is, the more personal to them, the more powerful it is. Hmm. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about trying to do something that's hard. If you have a reason that you really care about for wanting to do that, you're going to be better equipped to fight through challenges or obstacles or temptations as opposed to, you know, I guess I might get in trouble if I don't do this, but so what? I'm willing to take the punishment. Yeah. And then um, the other big core idea of self-determination theory that I find incredibly useful for design is that we can create experiences that support those sorts of internal motivations. We can kind of lead people toward them if we think about supporting three basic psychological needs. And those are autonomy or having meaningful choice, competence or the sense of learning and growing, and then relatedness, which is feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself. And so I actually grouped the book according to those three basic psychological needs. I think there's two chapters that get into a little bit of how you might design to support each of those basic psychological needs. But even what I just mentioned about something like a to-do app, if you're giving people some insight into their own behaviors, their own preferences with the way you design something, you're supporting that sense of competence because you're basically saying to them, when you do an action in the world, I see it and it has an effect and I'm able to give you something back that now you can use to either change that behavior or not. So that information loop is a really important way that you can support people's competence. Clear feedback on progress. Yes. I have always sort of, a, a lot of this sort of dovetails into the, uh, the study and understanding of, of flow states. And that is something that I have always been very, very interested in, um, both in how individuals can do it, myself personally, um, get into a state like that, but also how teams can together really feel a sense of like time has evaporated and we're just like, we're, we're the most creative we can be and, and things like that. And one of the things, uh, is this, this, the, uh, at least the first two, uh, autonomy and competency, which is that balance between mastery and challenge being right in between with an unbelievably tight feedback loop, always saying like, yes, this, no, not that right. As a way of, of really like getting into a craft or getting into an activity and completely forgetting about the outside world. Yeah. I, I also find the whole flow state fascinating. Um, and one of the things that as I started to learn about it more from a research perspective that I really appreciate is that if you zoom in on the flow state, there's still movement within it. So there's moments of, of rest and moments of challenge, but it all needs to be within this narrow band of your skill set. So you're trying to push at the edge of somebody's abilities as opposed to giving them something that falls outside of those abilities. And I just, I think it's such an interesting concept. And as a person who's experienced flow, like I definitely know how satisfying it can be to all of a sudden realize how much time has passed and that, you know, I've either had a lot of fun or maybe I've accomplished something during that flow state. And then um, as a designer, I think it's a really intriguing challenge to 
learn enough about your user, figure out how to use your technology to really accurately gauge what that ability range is, and then design the right set of experiences or challenges within it. Yeah, you know, that reminds me a lot of the time that I spent at Adobe uh, and the work that was going on there at the time, uh, because we had changed the business model from like, it's no, you know, Photoshop is no longer an $800 product, it's now uh, $15 a month, which fundamentally like, brought a tremendous amount of new users uh, that were completely inexperienced. Uh, with the product, had no familiarity. And imagine opening Photoshop for the very first time and literally having a blank canvas and a thousand tools pointing at you. Right. I don't have to imagine it because I think I was one of those new users. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and it happens over and over again. Like, whenever you get a new piece of software, many, especially something that's been established, been around for a while, has had many iterations of features added to it. It is like, how do we guide people? How do we help them towards mastery uh, without getting too bogged down in challenge? Um, and it's a very difficult dance, right? Do you hide part of the parts of the interface? Do you do you enforce tutorials to begin like there's a lot of a lot of thinking that goes into that yeah yeah um i i just i'm working on revising a paper um that i had co-written with some colleagues and one of the things that we've been looking at as part of the revisions is this idea of the the lead user so it's a concept from like the mid 80s is when um it was von hippel came up with this idea and it's not it's not actually a behavior change or a health related concept, but it's just this idea that the first people to adopt a technology are going to almost be like co-designers because uh. they will be the first people to encounter your design problems. And they are a valuable source of feedback to help iterate so that as you progress along the adoption curve, the product is more ready for the masses when, when you get to that point. And I think a really interesting piece of that is, you know, kind of the dark side of the coin is that your lead users also are very likely, I think, in many cases to be like your super tech savvy or like the people who are really nerdy about the area that you're designing in. So they may also encounter problems that are kind of niche. And I could just see a situation where you end up with this very um, interesting collection of tools and experiences that are designed for that, um, you know, like super nerdy user. Yeah. No, it reminds me of uh, Crossing the Chasm, the, the Jeffrey Moore book from Gosh, uh, 30 years ago now, I think it, it was. But that idea of like early adopters of technology as being, you know, uh, really involved in shaping and how do you get over to uh, mainstream adoption and stuff like that. So it's a, uh, it's a it, I don't know how well it holds up today, but it was a wonderful book early in my career for kind of understanding that process. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're, we're seeing a little bit of that happen now, I think, with Quantified Self, which oh, yeah. are you familiar with? Yeah. So, oh, sure. Yeah. I, I can remember not even that long ago, I would say within the last decade, going to – so I live in Boston, and MIT is right across the river, and I've attended events there through the Media Lab and other groups, and it's always very forward-thinking and kind of what you would think MIT might be. <laughs> and I can remember going to events – not that long ago where there'd be people who were like, I'm, I do quantified self. I've embedded sensors in, in my body and, you know, they're, they're self hacking all of this stuff. And I think now we're able to achieve a lot of that same measurement with like beautiful commercial technology. Yeah. With the Apple watch or the Fitbit uh, or things like that, that, um, that collect far more data than we've, we've ever uh, been able to, but make it yeah. incredibly accessible. Um, I mean, that's a, actually, I want to ask you about uh, some of that, but why don't we, uh, why don't we take a little break first uh, and hear one from one of our sponsors. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. 
Today's internet users, as we all know, as designers, expect a fast uh, web experience. No matter how good your content is or how effective your marketing or how much time you spent on their design, they'll most likely bounce if your website is loading too slow. So with real monitoring, real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance issues affect your visitors' experience so you can take action before your business is impacted. So how your visitors experience your website differs depending on the browser, the device, the platform they use. You want to identify how visitors are experiencing your website so you can make informed decisions and optimizations and deliver a great experience uh, for those who matter most. Real user monitoring from Pingdom is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability. And that means you can monitor millions of page views without compromising the fidelity of the historical data uh, or you know, spending tons and tons of money to try to store all of that in the process. So uh, you can get live visitor insights today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Uh, try it out. Uh, you got a 14-day trial. You don't even need to put your cr credit card in. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Uh, and then when you do sign up, use the code PRESENTABLE, and they'll knock 30% off your first invoice, which is fantastic. That's uh, pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. So, yeah, we had just uh, mentioned the Apple Watch and Fitbit and collecting all this data and doing things like that. What a, just a perfect example of designing for behavioral change, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I found when I was writing the book, actually, I had to sometimes deliberately try to think of examples that didn't fall into that <laughs> family of product because they're so convenient and easy. Uh, they, I mean, they just really pull through so many behavior change principles and techniques. Um, but yeah, fabulous example. And it's been incredible to see how democratized they've become. You know, I know I have friends whose parents wear Apple watches yeah. and you wouldn't have seen that with other technologies in the past. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, you, you discussed the three sort of pillars of self-determination theory. And maybe we could talk about those in a little more depth, autonomy, competence, and uh, relatedness. So talk a little bit about giving people control over meaningful choices and how you figure that out, like how you figure out what the choices should be and, uh, and, and really that sense of empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel a little bit bad. I tried mostly to use positive examples in in the book, but I know there's one that I used talking about meaningful choice where I specifically said, this is not a meaningful choice. I think there's a temptation as designers where we can control the entirety of a digital experience for people to give them a laundry list of things that they can choose and configure, but they aren't really important characteristics. So set the color of your dashboard or, you know, pick the font that will display here and those sorts of things. Some people might like that, but it's not really meaningful in the sense that it doesn't really impact anything beyond your experience on the screen. Um, the big area where I, I tend to focus on meaningful choice is actually helping people to articulate their goals in a way that matters to them. And that gets back to that motivational quality issue and, and helping people to find what, what is their most meaningful personal motivation. A, a kind of hard thing for designers as well in understanding self-determination theory is that you don't actually give somebody motivation. I try not to use motivate as a verb because it's more about working with people so that they can introspect, articulate what matters to them. Like really, people already have this. Everybody already has things that they value, things that they care about, ways that they think of themselves. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has spent the time to crystallize it into like an elevator pitch. Yeah. And I will say, even after working on this, I'm not sure I could do that. But 
helping somebody spend a little bit of time to do that as they're going into a behavior change experience then helps them to come up with that, that idea, that reasoning, why am I doing this? Is this actually supporting something I care about? Does this help me be more the type of person that I want to be or think I am? Does it support another goal I have? A lot of times I see that. Um, it's very cliche, but I, I truly, truly, almost every study that I run encounter at least a few people who are doing whatever the behavior change is for their kids or their grandkids. Like I want to be healthy. I want to be you know, vibrant for my, my kids. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle at her wedding, whatever. So helping people to think about what matters to them so that they're able to go through that exercise. And then the other things you're asking them to do inside the experience. So you know, maybe they have to take their medication every day. They don't really get a choice about that, but now they have a reason that they have chosen why they're going to do it. Right, right, right. That's great. So uh, tell me then a little bit, we talked a little bit about the competence angle of the, uh, of all of this, uh, especially around sort of getting into flow states and things, but providing clear feedback on that progress, especially in ways that really sort of lands with people. Yeah, yeah. I, I always try to think about giving feedback across different time periods. So one thing that feedback does is it tells you if the action you just took worked or not. And what's useful to people is, first of all, yes or no, was this a successful attempt? And two, if it was not a successful attempt, what should I have done better? What should I have done differently? And that sort of feedback needs to be delivered pretty close to the experience so that mm. people still remember what it is they just did. It's not really useful to come back to somebody a week later and say, you know, when, when we were having that conversation last week, you said this thing, like the memory isn't fresh enough for that feedback to make the impact. And then the second piece is, is looking at the longer term and people's cumulative progress over time. So um, I always I like to use Rock Band, the video game, as an example. And uh -huh. video games in general do an excellent job with this. And in fact, there is a whole line of research that is really cool and fun to, to read and look into of people who do research on engaging video games through the lens of self-determination theory. And they've basically found that the most engaging video games really uphold all of these principles very well. But you think about something like Rock Band, you're playing your instrument and you get this immediate feedback on the screen whether you missed the note or not. And because of the visuals and then the audio and the timing, you can see like, were you too early or too late? Like it's, it's very easy for people to figure out the specifics of what they need to do differently. But then you also see your cumulative score, your progress, and that gives you a sense of how all of those smaller actions are adding up into something bigger. In health, the thing that I work on a lot because it's a part of so many different healthcare issues is weight loss. Mm -hmm. And this sort of dual feedback view is so, so helpful for weight loss because if people are doing weight loss in a clinically safe way, it's going to be slow. They're going to have plateaus. They may even have setbacks where they gain back some of the weight temporarily. And we know this. So a thing that we can do for pe people who are trying to lose weight is we do want to give them that immediate feedback. You know, this is what your, your weight looks like today or this week. And let's think about the things that you just did that might have led to this. But also when they hit those points of plateau or, or um, gaining weight, saying to them, it's okay, you've still made progress from the start. And that can be a really nice way to help people continue to work through the behavior change, even when they probably feel defeated by, by what, what the, uh, the immediate feedback is. Mm, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting that you have framed the feedback, uh, almost entirely as positive feedback rather than really kind of pointing out what somebody did wrong. Uh, and I know there's a lot of, of research into the effectiveness of correcting behavior by pointing out times when they succeeded rather than this is wrong and that was wrong and you did that wrong. 
just a few years ago, I was doing some research for a health plan client. Um, they had, you know, like most health plans, they have a wellness program for their members and it's got all sorts of different apps and programs you could take. And I think they recognized that it was a pretty generic experience for people. So they hired us to come in and do some research with some of their members and figure out what, what are people really interested in having in these sorts of wellness programs. And the one overwhelming thing that people said is they want positive feedback. And it was, I've heard this before, but like being in the room with people who are talking about it has a different impact on you. I think as a researcher, um, you know, people getting upset, like really tearful talking about, you know, I I remember one person who is pre-diabetic saying they're trying really, really hard to make all these lifestyle changes that their doctor's asking them to do. And they, they mostly do a pretty good job, but they only ever get feedback when they mess up. And, um, I really took that to heart. Yeah. So it, it's consistent with the research, but like I said, that experience of actually talking to people and hearing it firsthand um, stuck with me. There's also another part of this, which is the assumption that all goals are kind of the same for people, right? Like I have a, uh, I have a friend who takes medication for a chronic condition that kind of messes with her metabolism uh, and she can't gain weight and needs to. She's a little underweight, so she has a goal set, right, uh, connected uh, a connected scale with a goal set to try to put on five more pounds. Uh, and the goal keeps saying, congratulations, you're, you've, you've, bought, you've passed your goal. You're doing great. You're doing great. When in fact, the system is designed to always be focused on weight loss and not just weight management. Yes. Um, and I, I think I may have actually called that out at some point in the book, uh, just really briefly in a note, because one of the things I did when I um, realized I was going to write this thing for real I went online and I actually solicited from people um, ideas for behavior change apps they were aware of or used. I knew I wanted to use a lot of examples and I wanted to try to go beyond the ones that I was most familiar with, you know, either from my career or from the the projects that I worked on. And thing one is most, most of the suggestions were actually not behavior change apps. It was really interesting. The things that people suggested that were like vaguely health related in many cases, I think perhaps because they know that I've worked mostly in the health field, but like not really behavior change at all. Uh And then the second thing was so just what you said, there's these assumptions built into various apps and programs. The weight one is huge. Even if you say that the goal is to gain weight or to maintain weight, I've worked with a couple of apps in this audit where they will acknowledge that, like they will give you the appropriate feedback in terms of, did you make progress toward that goal? But the content written around it still has that, that tone of, you know, Oh, like you gained weight. Ooh, that's not great. Right. It's it's almost like they, they just do the basics many times. And then the other area where there were similar sorts of assumptions baked in was actually around fertility because, um, a number of people suggested various um, ovulation and period tracking apps to me. So I was, I was using some of those to see what they were like. And for the most part, they assumed that pregnancy was a goal or, hmm. or not pregnancy was a goal. And there's many, many use cases where pregnancy might not even be part of the reason why somebody might use something like that. So I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, that's true. It, it, it gets to not just understanding that your audience is diverse, but having a diverse team build these products, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. Hey, are you looking for more podcasts? I always am. I'm always looking for something interesting, something new, something good to listen to. Uh, I've got even a little more free time than I used to have. And so finding a great podcast is always great. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, the IntraZone is a biweekly podcast with 
conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech can work for you. You'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field so you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life uh, and how it helps you easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. Each show covers a bunch of segments like uh, news and announcements, a focus topic of the week, guest perspectives, facts of the week, and... Uh, upcoming events in the SharePoint world. So uh, you just have so you have an idea of what to expect. I want to tell you about some of the topics that you might be interested in that were in previous episodes. You know they've talked about how teams have had to shift to remote work and how people are working from home and how a lot of the intranet tools that Microsoft sort of puts together can make that a lot more seamless. They talk a lot about on this podcast how to figure out an intelligent intranet for your organization, get people moving content, put it in the right places, be able to find it, put it into action. Uh, and they did an episode about talking about APIs and teamwork and you know stuff like that, which you should totally give a try. I listened to an episode recently where they talked to the head of product uh, of Microsoft SharePoint about how they've sort of come to understand the way that teams work together and the research they've done and, uh, and how they sort of mapped uh, a lot of the features of those tools into the things people were trying to accomplish. So it's super interesting. Go and listen to it now. Just search the Intra Zone wherever you find your podcast. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E. Uh, or just click the link in the show notes to this episode. Go check it out. Thanks to IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Tell me about relatedness. Now, this one I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in, which is the, the the feeling of being part of something larger, of being connected to other people while you're trying to change your own behavior. Uh, and it seems like, well, frankly, this is a place where it can go very well or very poorly. Um, so yeah. tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, and it really is, I think the way you put it is nice. It's, it's about being connected, to, feeling connected to others. It's not necessarily about having... Um, you know, social networking or a one-to-one peer relationship, although that can be a way to fill somebody's need for relatedness. Um, I, I sometimes say, you know, people are not lone wolves, even if they are relatively individual, independent people, all of us still need companionship in some form. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't want to date our interview too much, but I think we're really seeing this right now with the coronavirus pandemic mm-hmm. and people being asked to stay at home one of the reasons that that is so hard is because we are such social creatures and we are constantly seeking opportunities to not even necessarily like have a, a date with somebody and sit down and have a conversation, but we gain something from being out in the world and seeing that other people are having similar experiences to us. It helps us feel like we're part of a bigger community. And that is one of our basic psychological needs. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book and that I'm also really interested in from a design perspective is that because we are so hungry for this relatedness, this feeling of belonging, we're actually able to create emotional connections with non-humans in order to fill that need. And so there's a lot that we can do as designers when we build technology to, for example, really personalize an experience. So use people's data in a way that feeds them back something that feels like it's really, you know, seen them. It, it understands something important about them as an individual. And even if your, your user understands that this is all design, it's not a live human being behind the screen talking to them, seeing something important about themselves reflected back in the digital experience can still hit some of those needs. Do you have a, do you have a good example of that? Um, so it's not a publicly available example, but I worked for quite a while for a company called Health Media that Johnson & Johnson acquired. And the products that we made were called Digital Health Coaching. And the whole 
um, idea in, in them was that they were tailored. That's the terminology that we use. So uh -huh. we uh, collected data. We had self-report um, intake during onboarding, but then we were also able to connect with other data sources if they existed. And we had, it wasn't, it was like a handwritten algorithm, basically. That was part of what our content developers did in conjunction with our behavior change team that would personalize the output to the sentence fragment level. And um, it, it, so Vic Strecker, I interviewed him at the end of one of the chapters in my book. He is a professor at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and now a serial startup founder. But he had founded Health Media based on his research around this personalization and he's continued to do that type of research. And, and what he's found is that neurologically, this, this really personal information hits people differently. And it is more likely to change their behaviors in the long term, we think, because it's it's triggering these more powerful areas of the brain. And it's also filling these, these uh, basic psychological needs. Interesting. So could this be an example like the Spotify Discover Weekly playlist, where every week I get a new playlist that's based on everything that I've listened to. And when I listen to that, I discover new music. And I guess inside I get this feeling of like, oh, the algorithm knows me. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. I think I might have actually uh, mentioned that one in the book as well, because I think they do a really good job with it. And you can see where these algorithms can sometimes mess up as well. Yeah. I think Netflix doesn't do as good of a job with it in part because they're trying to promote their own programming. And right. so a good algorithm, a good personalization algorithm will take some risks because that is how it introduces new material to you. If it just relies on the things that you've historically liked, you're just going to basically at some point get bored of that playlist to use yeah. Spotify again as the example. So it's got to take some risks and throw some new songs in that share some fingerprint with the things that you do like. But that needs to be done in a measured way. And there needs to be some sort of mechanism for the user to say, oh, no, you messed up so that the algorithm can adjust. And I think you, you really can see the difference. Spotify does that very, very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are kind of brushing up against some of the uh, – using some of these practices for dark patterns, right? For mm -hmm. Especially when you start talking about social media and engagement and algorithms and things like that. Where I think, you know, the way to frame that is as we're talking about behavioral change, which is empowering people to meet their goals, what happens when, when the goals of the business that someone's interacting with are at odds with the goals of the person and, uh, and a designer is kind of in between and maybe not even at odds, but not perfectly aligned, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I care a lot about this. And um, two of the people that I interviewed for my book, we actually, I, I, reached out to them because I think they both have really good perspectives on this. So Sarah watched her Betcher, and uh -huh. I know that I, I always say her name a little bit wrong and I apologize to her. I'm so sorry. Um, and Cheryl Kababa. Um, so in, in our interviews, I could only excerpt a very small bit of them, but a lot of the cutting room floor material is really going in depth on some of these things. Um, I think that there is a role for the individual designer to speak up, to advocate for the user, to you know push for doing things the right way. I also know that many designers, especially early in their career, are not necessarily in a place where they have the influence to make a difference, where they um, you know have the job security to do that. So I, I want to just say that I'm sensitive to the fact that there are sometimes people who are you know, working on these projects and maybe don't feel great about them, but their circumstances are such that they don't feel they have a good alternative. And of course, there's cases where it, that shouldn't matter because whatever you're doing is so egregious. But I think a lot of times these cases really do fall in that gray area where, you know, this isn't the best, but I really need the paycheck. 
Um, I think it's incumbent on more senior people then to really be vigilant about these sorts of things. And one of the things that I do as a consultant is I am outspoken about this. I also work for a company that specifically defines itself as purpose driven. So it's part of our mission statement that we try to do projects that are good for people and good for business. And I've seen in my time at my company a few times where we have declined to do a project because we really felt like it was, you know, the business interests were not in support of the user interests. And so I've been very fortunate that I found a company that does that and really, um, you know, lives into what they say as part of their mission statement. It, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I think, I think dissent is often a privilege as, as <laughs> you point out, right. That you can find yourself in very difficult positions where you simply have to have the job and, and things like that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, one of the, the benefits of, of consulting, of, of being, essentially the expert that's brought in is that you can be provocative without having any skin in the game for the politics of the organization. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I also know situations and I've been in house too. So I've been in house where I've been on the side that's doing this. You can bring in a consultant to be that voice of reason. So maybe you're the internal person who feels that this isn't the right path and you're just validating that and kind of putting the onus of making the uncomfortable comment on the third party. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, essentially, <laughs> use all these practices, but don't be evil. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I do think that there is a space, too, for community and social proof. I, as we were talking, I was just thinking, um, you know, Juul, the vape company, yeah. um, they had a position open for the longest time for a behavior scientist. And in the job description, it was, I mean, it was, it was just like really clearly disingenuous, you know, how they were looking for somebody with psychological knowledge to help design an experience that would like help people become non-smokers by transitioning them onto Juul. And there was a lot of chatter in what I'll call my professional community, like the network of people I know who have training in behavior change and design and kind of live in that nexus that, you know, I don't know if they ever got anyone to apply for that job, but I know that the professional community was very much like, you know what, this is not a good place for people without training to be working. Like this is not something any of you should pursue. And, uh, if anyone I know applied for it, they certainly didn't speak up about it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of those, uh, Mad Men episodes when they were taking on Lucky Strike as a client, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the job, I think I probably, I, I'm almost positive. I did tweet an excerpt from the job description. It was just like laugh out loud, disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like not everything is quite so black and white. There's so many shades of gray into, um, into the decisions we're making. And, oh yeah. And, and sometimes you don't even realize, so incentives are something that I run into a lot again, mm. working in healthcare. So if you um, are in the United States and you're on a health insurance plan, chances are there are some sorts of programs that you can participate in for an incentive. Like they might knock down your premium cost or you might get some kind of gift card. And there's a lot of ethics around incentives that isn't obvious to people until they've had some training and experience. It seems on its face, like paying people to do something, that's, that's a good thing, right? Like you get money, money is great. But um, if you over-incentivize somebody, it becomes coercion. If somebody doesn't have the freedom to say no because they can't afford it, they don't really have a choice. And it's things like that that are maybe a little bit more subtle, where again, it's incumbent on the more senior and the more experienced people to speak up and point those out. Right, right, right. Uh, you talked about uh, Sweatcoin, right? Which is this uh, scheme mm -hmm. where you you get paid for all the steps you take uh, during the day with your Apple Watch tracking you. And the reality is you're not actually getting paid. You're getting little cryptocurrency tokens that are essentially worthless. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, so that's the other thing too, with all the things that I use as examples, I actually did use them myself for a while. Um, I wanted to make sure that I was commenting on them fairly and accurately. And I truly did not realize that you were getting cryptocurrency until, I don't know, six, seven days in the process. And that <laughs> app wears down the battery life of your phone too. So I, I really felt like I had given something up for, you know, I, I wasn't given what I was promised. Right. Right, right, right. Well, you know, disclosure is a big part of building trust, and and they they didn't do that, and you no longer trust the app, uh, and that is virtually impossible to get back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think there's a role too as a designer to say, you know, I may not be as attractive to a user if I'm honest, but I am also not going to violate their trust. So I think you're you're overall better off, even if it's a harder sell because you're being honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a classic balance that most businesses face between uh, it's essentially growth versus churn right if you think about it in the in the sort of yeah. startup language of like how do we attract and new users like tends to be one part of the organization how do we keep the users we have is the other part of the organization and i tell you what if you can do a really good job at keeping users by telling them the truth that might affect growth but your churn will be much lower over time which could be an easier path to profitability yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, you've got to think about when your users aren't your users anymore either. A lot of the things that we design for behavior change are designed to get people to a goal where then they would no longer be a user. And I, in an ideal world, what we want is a really happy graduate who is going to go out and tell other people, hey, you have to try this thing that really worked for me. And so giving them that experience that leaves them an evangelist. Mm, yeah. And ultimately doing the marketing for you. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, the book is called Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change. It's from our friends at Rosenfeld Media. I will put a link to that in the description uh, in the show notes uh, of this episode. Where, where else should we send people for some more? So I have a website. It's um, amybucherphd.com. I used to blog very regularly on there, and then I wrote a book, and that was the only thing I wrote for about a year. And now <laughs> I'm trying to get back into blogging. Uh-huh. But I also do put links on there anytime I have, um, you know, an article or, or another piece somewhere. So it's a good place to just kind of look at those resources. And then um, on Twitter, I'm Amy B. PhD, and I also tweet reg regularly and not just about behavior change. So um, hope to see some people on there. Fascinating stuff. Amy, thanks so much for being on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. It was good talking to you. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.